Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Vineyard. Well, after Jesus' triumphal entry, which we have studied the last couple of weeks, after his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, uh, he later entered into the temple. And as he walked onto that huge court of the Gentiles, what he saw happening there made him very, very angry. If you remember, the place that was supposed to be a special place, the place that was supposed to be a holy place, the place that was supposed to be a, a place of prayer for all nations where Jews and Gentiles could gather on this area, like 29 American football fields, and seekers could seek the one true living God and rub shoulders with Jews who were supposed to know and walk with this God, a place where people could pray, that place had been turned into a massive marketplace. And Annas, the former high priest, is the one who was responsible primarily. He oversaw this lucrative business, and he and his associates, they were getting rich off the backs of God's people through this marketplace. They were making money hand over fist. And the reason, um, uh, uh, the two ways that they were making money uh, number one was through the sale of sacrificial animals. And so they knew that the Jews had to sacrifice their animals according to Leviticus. And so what they did is that they had these animals on the Temple Mount, but they sold them at highly inflated prices. So they're making money off of that. And they're also making money, number two, off of an excessive exchange rate at the money changing tables. If you remember, Jewish pilgrims would come from uh, different areas around the Roman Empire. They had foreign currency, Greek and Roman coins. You can't use that on the, at the temple. And so at the money changing ta tables, you'd bring your Roman coin, your denarius, let's say, and you exchange it for a Jewish shekel so you could pay the annual poll tax. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the annual temple tax. And so that's the way they were making their, their money. And so when Jesus saw that his father's house had been changed into this money-making scheme, he got upset. He drove out the dishonest merchants. He turned over the tables. Jesus showed righteous anger because his father was being misrepresented by Annas, by his associates. He quoted, as he's turning over the tables, Isaiah 56, verse seven. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you, you Annas, you associates of Annas, you've made it into a den of robbers. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. If you know your Bibles, if you know the New Testament, you know this is the second time he's cleansed the temple. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry, and now he's doing it again at the end of his ministry. He did it the first time in John chapter two, but guess what happened after he cleansed the, the, the temple? They went right back and they set up the bazaar of Annas, the big marketplace, once again. And so he has to do it at the end of his ministry here in Mark chapter 11. What does that tell you about the leaders of Israel? What it tells me is that they were unrepentant. How many of you guys know that repentance is a change of mind that leads to an actual change in your life? 
right? And, but that didn't happen. He cleansed the temple, but now three years later, it's all messed up again. And so the Lord had to cleanse it for a second time. He does that. He goes back up to the Mount of Olives. He spends the night in the little village of Bethany, wakes up the next day. He goes back to the temple and guess who's waiting for him? Israel's leaders. And they're not happy. So today we're gonna pick it up in verse 27. It says, and they came, that's Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, notice the three groups here. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And so after Jesus walks up on the court of the Gentiles again, a new day, there's Israel's leaders, members of the Sanhedrin, chief priests, scribes, elders, these members of the Sanhedrin swoop down on Jesus like vultures. And, and, and they're demanding a response to the question, where are you getting this authority to do these things, right? They're upset. And the reason they're upset is because Jesus and his teachings for the last three years, it's jeopardizing their power, it's jeopardizing their, their, their positions, it's jeopardizing their profits. And so Jesus, come here for a second. What authority do you have to do these things? You know, what authority do you have to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey acting like you're the Messiah, allowing people to say that you're the Messiah? What authority do you have uh, to come on to the court of the Gentiles and to close down Annas' marketplace? What authority do you have in the last three years to do what you've been doing up in Galilee and over in the Decapolis and here in Jerusalem and Judea? You know, who do you think you are? They've taken off the gloves and they're ready for a fight. And Jesus answers them now in verse 29. He said to them, well, I will ask you one question. And by the way, this is what rabbis are famous for doing. When they're asked a question, instead of answering the question, they ask a question in face of the question. You should probably try that sometime when you're asked a question in a debate situation. He said, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And there's a pause. And he says, answer me. <laughs> okay, so of course, the baptism of John referred to the ministry of John the Baptist. Okay, right now we're at the end of Jesus' ministry hit the rewind button, go back three years to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and who else had a ministry that was um, in full swing over in the Judean desert? John the Baptist. If you go with us to Israel, we'll take you down to where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea in the Judean wilderness, and we'll show you approximately the area that John the Baptist baptized thousands, not hundreds, thousands of people. The Bible says that thousands of Jews from Jerusalem and Judea 
uh, went to John the Baptist in the Judean wilderness to confess their sins to God in order to be and to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when Israel's leaders, the ones who are questioning Jesus right now in Mark 11, when Israel's leaders found out about John the Baptist's ministry and a revival going on and, and thousands of people being affected, they sent a delegation out to the Jordan River and the Jewish leaders of Israel demanded an answer from John the Baptist three years prior to where we are in the Bible. They said, who are you? Are you Elijah? You know, are you the prophet? And I want you to look at how John responds to them John the Baptist, speaking to Israel's leaders, he says, I am the, what? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet, notice this, Isaiah said. And so John's going all the way back to an ancient prophecy in back then, their scroll of Isaiah, we have it in a leather-bound book. It's Isaiah 40, verse 3. He goes all the way back to an ancient prophecy to give credence to who he was and to what he was doing. So we're going to put up this ancient prophecy up on the screen, and I want you to notice who the Lord was. Okay, so here we go. Isaiah 40, verse 3, written 700 B.C., thereabouts. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And if you look at the Hebrew Bible, the word for Lord is Yahweh. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert, a highway for our who? God, Elohim. And so once again, you gotta get this. This will help you the next time you get a knock on your door on Saturday. <laughs> People are trying to get, persuade you that Jesus is something that he's not. Don't believe them. They say that he was a created being. They say that he was Michael the archangel, yet they call him Jesus. Listen, they have another Jesus. They have a Jesus who cannot save you. You need to understand who Jesus is, okay? And so the word that we translate Lord in our English Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, that word for Lord is actually Yahweh. And so Isaiah prophesied that in the future, a voice would come and that voice would prepare Israel for Yahweh God. Isaiah said this 700 BC. Fast forward 700 years, go over to the first century AD, go over to the Judean wilderness, go over to that place where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, and there you see a man, he's, he's clothed in camel's hair, he's eating grasshoppers, and he's shouting the word repent. He's the voice. What's his name? Tell me who's, uh, John, right? John the Baptist. And who was he preparing Israel for? What's his name? Jesus. Okay, so do you see what that means? A voice, John the Baptist, cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. So what does this mean if you're taking notes? 
Here's what it means. It means that Jesus is not Michael the archangel. Jesus is Yahweh. He's God. Isaiah 40, verse three. And that's just one of 100 places I could take you if we had time in the Bible to prove the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. And people say, well, did Jesus really know that he was God in the flesh when he walked around? Yes, absolutely he knew. And did you know that he told the religious leaders who he was? He told them. There's no ambiguity, there's no confusion of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus was. Jesus told the religious leaders who he was. I'll set that story up by giving you a little bit of background. How many of you guys remember um, when God revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush? Does anybody remember that? If you do, remember, raise your hand. Some of you, okay, so I mean, some of you haven't seen, number one, the movie. <laughs> That's on every Easter. It just keeps going and going and going with Charleston Heston. Uh, and that means that some of you haven't read the Bible. And so I wanna encourage you to read the Bible, read Exodus chapter three. And so there's Moses. And by the way, um, so real quick, Abraham, Father Abraham, that's Genesis, that's 2,000 years before Christ. Moses, that's Exodus, that's 1,500 years before Christ. David, that's first, second Samuel, Psalms, that's 1,000 years before Christ, okay? So you got a little bit of a timeline. And so right now, we're 1,500 years before Christ. Here's Moses, and God is calling him to, let, to um, uh, lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of their Egyptian slavery, and there's a burning bush. And, and Moses is like, God, who do I tell these people? Who, who are you? You know, what's your name? All right, so we're gonna put up what God said. He said, Moses, tell them, I am who I am. Don't you love that about God? He's like very secure. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I am who I am. He said that 1,500 years before Christ. Fast forward 1,500 years, you get to John chapter eight. Jesus is having a heated discussion with the leaders of Israel about Abraham. And Jesus says, hey, your father Abraham, religious leaders, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the religious leaders say, time out, young man. You're not even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. You've seen Abraham? Look how Jesus responded to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Sound familiar? Jesus knew who he was. He even told the religious leaders who he was. He's the great I am. He is Yahweh God. He is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Absolutely, 1,000%. And you might say, well, I thought the Father was the great I am. You're right, he is, and so is his son. Don't forget what Jesus said to Philip in John 14, nine. He said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? He who has seen the Father, I'm see, see who has, he who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, nine. And so ladies and gentlemen, true Christians believe in one God, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So don't let someone knocking on your door on Saturday persuade you otherwise. They can keep their watchtower. We'll stay with the word of God. We'll stay with the word of God. 
And so John the Baptist publicly endorses Jesus as Yahweh God, the Lord, Isaiah 40, verse three. But you know what Israel's leaders did? They rejected John the Baptist and they rejected his message. And Jesus knew that. And so Jesus asks them, they're all, you know, uh, peacock feathers flowing in the wind. They're all upset at Jesus. And so Jesus says in verse 30, well, answer me a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me, answer me. Do you, do you guys understand there's nothing wrong with debate? There's nothing wrong with apologetics. If we, if we say, oh, all religions are the same essentially and everybody's gonna go to heaven when they die, we have misrepresented God. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus stood toe to toe for the truth. He said, answer me. Was John's baptism from heaven or not? And so verse 31, they all huddle up in a corner somewhere and they discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, he's gonna say, well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? <laughs> because they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So Israel's leaders knew they were in a pickle. If they said that John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven, it's from God then Jesus would have said, well, why didn't you believe the man? He said, I was the Lord, Yahweh God. Why didn't you believe him? And so these guys would never in a million years admit that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord. And so what are they gonna do? They're in a pickle here. Now, they can't come right out and say, well, John the Baptist was out to lunch and his ministry was not from God because the crowd believed John the Baptist was a true prophet. They loved John. So they don't know what to do. Let's see what happens now in verse 33. So they answered Jesus, well, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I, I love the Lord and how he responds perfectly in every situation. And so now the Lord is gonna buy a parable, a famous parable called the parable of the vineyard. What he's gonna do now is he's going to publicly reveal what's secretly going on behind the scenes. What's secretly going on behind the scenes is that these guys are planning to execute him. He knows it because he's God. And so look at verse, chapter 12, verse one. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. And if you don't mind marking in your Bibles, I'm gonna have you underline five words. He says, a man, so underline the word man, planted a vineyard, please underline the word vineyard, and he put a fence around it, so that would be probably a hedge of thorns to keep wild animals out. He put a, head, a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press, if you go with me to Israel, I'll take you to Capernaum and we'll go to uh, where archeologists uh, went down and they dug out a genuine wine press. It's about the size of this part of the stage right here. It has an upper vat and a lower vat. The upper vat is where they would walk around on the grapes and there's a channel and the, the grape juice would go down into the lower vat where they would allow it to ferment and to make their wine. And so he, 
He is the landowner, it's his land. He plants the vineyard, he puts the hedge around it. He, he, he digs a pit and makes a wine press. He builds a tower so that people can be on the lookout for wild animals and for robbers. And he leased it to tenants. Those are tenant farmers. So it's his land, it's his vineyard, and he's renting it to these tenant farmers. And then he, the landlord, goes away to another country. Verse two, when the season came, he sent, please underline the word, servant. To the, please underline, tenants. To get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, they took that servant, and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Verse four. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. These tenant farmers are some wicked guys, right? And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And so now in verse six, the landlord had still one other and I want you to underline a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, well, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us do what? Can you see Jesus shouting this parable? Hundreds of people on the court of the Gentiles and there's Israel's leaders, their faces are turning red. He's revealing publicly what they're planning secretly. This is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they, the tenant farmers, killed him, the son, and threw him out of the vineyard. And so Jesus tells the famous parable of the vineyard. What does the parable mean? Okay, so here's the key. The landlord's the father. The landlord represents the father. The vineyard represents Israel. The tenant farmers represents Israel's leaders. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know Israel's kings, man, they were some wicked people. The servants were the prophets. And of course, the son is Jesus. And so just like in the parable, just like the landowner entrusted his vineyard to these tenant farmers, so in reality, God, the Father, he entrusted Israel to Israel's leaders during Old Testament times. And just like the landlord sent his servants to the vineyard to get some of its fruit and bring it back to him, right? It's his vineyard. He says, hey, servants, go get some of the fruit. Go get some of the grapes, get some of the wine, bring it back to me. Just like in the parable, he did that. So the father, in Old Testament times, he sends all these prophets to Israel to call the nation to repentance and to receive some spiritual fruit from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just like the tenant farmers treated those servants shamefully, beating some, killing others, so Israel's leaders, what did they do? They treated God's prophets in the Old Testament shamefully. They beat them up and they killed them. 
Can I just give you a few examples? All right, King Saul, remember King Saul? Okay, the first king of Israel, a leader of Israel, what does he do? He persecutes and chases for years David, who by the way was a prophet, a man after God's own heart. If you say, I thought David was the second king, he was, well, I didn't know he was a prophet. Well, read Psalm 22 someday and you'll see details that David wrote about Calvary. A thousand years before it happened in Psalm 22, he was a prophet. Queen Jezebel, how many of you guys ever heard of her? Why is it that none of us ever name our daughters Jezebel? <laughs> she was about as bad as you can get. What did she do? She murdered God's prophets. She massacred, massacred them. King Joash ordered the stoning of Zechariah the prophet, God's man, being pelted with stones because Israel's leader at the time said, kill him. The Talmud, not the Bible, but the Talmud says that King Manasseh found Isaiah, the prophet, hiding in a tree, a hollow tree, and so he cut the tree and in the same time sawed Isaiah in half. And then you get to the New Testament and you see King Herod, and what does he do? He chops off the head of the greatest prophet of all. What was his name? John the Baptist. And so in the parable, after the landowner discovered that his servants had been treated shamefully by these tenant farmers, he decides, I'm gonna send my beloved son to the vineyard. You know, of course, they're gonna respect my son. And just like the landowner did that, so God the Father sent his one and only beloved son to Israel. And just like the tenant farmers took the son and killed him and threw him outside the vineyard. So these leaders standing on the court of the Gentiles with red faces listening to this parable expose the wickedness of their hearts. They know they've been planning to execute God's one and only son. And Jesus, through a parable, just called them out. They knew that in just two or three days, they'd get him killed and they use the Romans and Jesus, just like the, the, in the parable, the guy was thrown outside the vineyard, the beloved son thrown outside the vineyard, Jesus would suffer on a cross outside the city gates. That's what you call a provocative parable. But it gets even a little more provocative now in verse nine. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? All right, so who does the owner represent? Here's the question, what's the owner gonna do? Here's the answer. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And just 37 years after Jesus shared this famous parable of the vineyard, it, verse nine was fulfilled. And God stepped in and God judged the leaders of Israel and he gave the nation to others. And we've already studied this, so just real briefly, in case you weren't here 
uh, last two weeks, in AD 70, 37 years after where we are in Mark 11, in AD 70, um, back in 66, the, the Jews revolted against the Romans. They took temporary control of Jerusalem. The Roman Empire is like, this is not gonna happen. And so Titus comes down with the Roman army. They surround Jerusalem. They ransack the city. They kill hundreds of thousands of Jews. They burn down the temple. The Jews are scattered. But then they regroup and there's another big revolt called the Bar Kokhba revolt. And by 135, 36 AD, they revolt again against the Roman Empire. This time it's Emperor Hadrian. He sends in the troops. The Roman army comes in. Again, they kill hundreds of thousands. This is not, listen, this is, this is like history. You can Google it. Hundreds of thousands of Jews wiped out by the Romans and, and Hadrian takes Judea and he renames it. He says, this is no longer Israel. This is Syria, Palestina. What does he do? He Latinizes the name of Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines. He says, this is no longer Israel. This is Palestine. Where'd the word Palestine come from? From Emperor Hadrian around 135, 136 AD. And you've heard me talk about how God's not done with Israel and they're back into the land. And can, can we just respect God's people and stop using the term Palestine? It's Israel. It's Israel. Just do that in for free. All right. So now speaking to Israel's leaders in verse 10, Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the what? Cornerstone. cornerstone. Everybody say cornerstone. cornerstone. All right? And so this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus right now quotes to Israel's leaders Psalm 118. And he says, guys, I'm the cornerstone. I'm the one the psalmist was talking about way back in Psalm 118. But you've rejected the cornerstone. And so when you're building or when they were building a building back in ancient times, the cornerstone was the most important stone. So we'll show you a modern rendition of what this would look like. And so the cornerstone, it was put in the extreme corner of the building. And so its placement where it's at, it's the largest of the stones and its placement where it's at ensured that every other stone was properly placed and properly aligned. And so the cornerstone made sure that the rest of the building was straight and it made sure that the rest of the building was stable. And God's, and Jesus says to Israel's leaders, I'm the cornerstone. I came to straighten you out. I would have given you stability but you've rejected me. And thus you have fulfilled Psalm 118. Is this making sense to you guys? All right, so before we move on, I've got to share with you what Matthew now records. The very next sentence out of Jesus' mouth. I don't know why Mark doesn't put it in there, but Matthew did. Jesus continuing this conversation with Israel's leaders. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God that's a big deal right there, that phrase. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people 
producing its fruits. All right, so in the context, who's you? It's the leaders of Israel. And who's the people? It's the church. The church. And so you say, well, how does all this affect us? You know, Pastor Mike, why do we go so in-depth in the Bible? Why do we gotta study verse by verse? Well, here's why, because when you study verse by verse, you get the sense of what God is doing in history. And you understand who you are and whose you are. Ladies and gentlemen, we are the church. The church is not a building, the church is people. And we have been given the kingdom of God. We, here in this room, those of us who confess Jesus as Lord, we've been given the kingdom of God. And so in Matthew chapter 16, the Lord asked his disciples, he said, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people think you're Elijah. Other people think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said this, who do you say I am? Now, that's a question that some of you, you still haven't answered it yet. You're still on the fence. You're still not knowing where you're at. And Jesus is up in heaven. He's saying to you right now, who do you say I am? And Peter, you gotta love him. He pipes up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And this excites me. The reason it excites me is because Peter was willing to declare what Israel's leaders would not declare. And so Jesus gets excited and he says to Peter, two verses down, We'll put up Matthew 16, 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this, what's the word? I will build. And I, I love the next two sentences because this is job security for guys like me. <laughs> and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's so cool. That is so cool. And so that's the first time in the New Testament, that's the first time in the entire Bible that we see the word church. Okay, so what does it mean? It means, the word is ekklesia in the Greek, it means a called out people. And so if you haven't really been into it yet, I really want you to focus in right now. We are in a pivotal place in the word of God. Because Israel's leaders have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the Lord is ready to do something new. He's ready to call out a new group of people made up of, listen, Jews and Gentiles who are willing to declare what Peter declared, and that is Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God the church. Now, some people believe the church is built on Peter. With all due respect, if the church was built on Peter, the church would have crumbled 2,000 years ago. The church is not built on Peter. When Jesus said, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, he wasn't saying Peter, I'm gonna build the church on you. He's saying, Peter, I'm gonna build the church on the truth that just came out of your mouth, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen. The church is built on the rock, okay? And so who's the rock? Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. 
Again, we're at a pivotal, pivotal place in the word of God. I wanna keep saying it because I want you to understand what's happening in history and how it affects us today in 2018. We're at a pivotal place in the word of God. Israel's leaders have said, no, you're not the Christ. You're not the son of the living God. And so because they rejected their Messiah, the Lord is ready to do something new. And so after he died on the cross outside the city gates, and after he rose again to authenticate that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, what happens when you turn over to, book, to the book of Acts? Luke, the historian who, who dotted every I and crossed every T and interviewed eyewitnesses. This is not legend. This is not a, a myth. This is historical Evidence. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. He writes the book of Acts. What happens when you come to Acts chapter 2? Well, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up. That's the ascension. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down. And on the day of Pentecost, the church is born. He said, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to do something new. I'm gonna call out a new group of people. We're at a pivotal place in the word of God. We're about to go from God dealing with Israel to God dealing with the church. We're about to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We're about to go from the dispensation of law to the dispensation of grace. We're about to go to millions of animals being sacrificed to the Lamb of God, sacrificed once for all. That's what's happening right now in history. This is how it affects us. We're about to go from God dwelling in a temple to God dwelling in the hearts of people who love his son. We're the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is within you. We're about to go from no access behind the veil, because if they went behind the veil, they'd fall down dead, to a call now from heaven, hey, come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. We're about to go from the old covenant, which Hebrews says is now obsolete, to the new covenant that's being ushered in through the church, through you and I. Do you realize the grace of God? Do you realize who you are and whose you are and do you realize the kingdom of God is within you we are the kingdom of God and not just us not just this little church we're just one in millions of churches all around the world we're part of what God is doing all over the world with people who stand shoulder to shoulder with Peter and say I'm not ashamed of this Christ Jesus is Lord Amen. Yahweh he's God of very God's and we thank God that we, by his grace, can stand on Jesus the rock. So here's your next point, it's a question. Is Christ your rock? Or are you just going through religious motions coming to church? Is he your rock? Are you building your life on him? Are you aligning your life with his life? Listen, he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone ensured that the placement of every other stone was placed properly and, and it, it ensured the, the straightness and the stability of the building. If you allow Jesus to be your cornerstone, here's what he'll do. He'll straighten you out. You say, I don't know if I like that. Listen, no discipline as you're going through it feels very good, but at the end, it yields this peaceable fruit of righteousness 
and it'll give you a joy that you've never had before in your life. Let him straighten you out. Let him be Lord. Submit your will to his will. Let him call the shots. He will straighten you out and he'll bring stability to your life. I'm in my 50s, my early 50s. <laughs> I'm not that old yet. But listen, some of you are here, you're teenagers. You're in your 20s. If you will decide Jesus is my Lord, I'm gonna build my life on his word, on Jesus the rock. Do you know that he will bring stability to those big decisions that are going to set the course for the rest of your life? I thank God that Jesus, by his grace, revealed himself to me when I was 17 years old. And, and by his grace, I was able to say, Jesus, you're my Lord. And what did he do? He brought stability to the decisions that set the course for the rest of my life. He wants to do that for you. He wants to bring stability to your marriage. He wants to bring stability to your family. He wants to bring stability to your relationships. He wants to bring stability to your career. He wants to bring stability to who you are on the inside. He wants to bring stability to you mentally and emotionally and spiritually. I mean, listen, all hell can be breaking loose all around you. And yet you're stable, why? Because Jesus said, I'm not gonna deliver you from the storm, but I will stand with you in the storm. And you can stand on Christ the rock in the storm. And you don't have to move. Is it gonna hurt? Yes. Is it gonna rain? Yes. Is the wind gonna blow? Yes. But thank God Christ is in us. Jesus said, he who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain came down. How many of you guys know rain comes down in this fallen world? All the time. The rain came down, the floods came up, the wind blew and beat on that house, and Jesus said it collapsed. And great was the fall of it, why? Because this person just heard it, but they're like, nah. But then the Lord says, he who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And guess what? It rains on us too. And the rain came down, the floods came up and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it stood firm. Why? It's built on Christ the rock. He's our cornerstone. He's the answer. He's our hero. It's him. Have you built your life on Jesus, the rock? Now we're almost done, stay with me here, but the crowds, they're, they're not making a commitment, they're just infatuated with Jesus. And so the religious leaders, they're not giving up, and so they're, they're gonna continue to try to drag his name through the mud. And so now in verse 12, it says, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them. Hmm. He's, the, the, the leaders of Israel are standing there and they're like, I think that parable of the vineyard, I think that's about us, guys. So they left him and went away. They're embarrassed, they're mad, but they're not gonna quit. They regroup, they have their little meeting and they try a different approach. In verse 13, they sent 
to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. By the way, those two groups hated each other, but they hate Jesus more, so they're uniting in order to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, I want you to picture this in your mind. Here they come, big smiles on their face. Teacher, oh, teacher, we we know that you are true and do not care about anybody's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly, truly you teach the way of God. It's like, can we throw up please? Insincere flattery. By the way, I can't stand it when people come and flatter because they have an ulterior motive to get something from you. Hate it. Teacher, teacher, okay, yeah, all this flattery, and now they drop the bomb in front of this big crowd. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's a loaded question. They're trying to stump Jesus. If Jesus would have said, no, no, we we shouldn't pay taxes, we're Jews. If he would have said that publicly, they would have run over to the Antonia Fortress right by the temple called the Roman Centurion. He would have sent troops, they would have arrested Jesus. If he said, no, don't pay your taxes. But if Jesus said, yes, you should pay your taxes. I know we're Jews, but they're the Romans and they're occupying our land and you should pay your taxes. Then they would say, well, what kind of Messiah are you? You're supposed to deliver us from Israel, from from the Romans, not tell us to pay taxes to the Romans. Who are you anyway? And so they thought they had stumped Jesus. Do you guys think that you can stump Jesus? All right, let's see what he says in verse 15. But knowing their, what? Hypocrisy. By the way, what's the number one reason people say they don't go to church? Right? The church is filled with hypocrites. And I like to think, well, come join us and we'll have one more. But I don't, I don't say that. I don't say that, but the reason I don't say that is because a lot of times it's true. And I just want to encourage everybody, and myself included, man, just be Real, no flattery, no ulterior motives, just be who you are. And so knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. A denarius was a silver Roman coin. It's worth about one day's wages. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, well, whose likeness and inscription is this? And of course, everybody knew that on the denarius was minted the bust of Caesar Tiberius. So they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they, what at him? Marveled at him. And so they thought they had him in check. And he put him in checkmate because he's the Lord. Now, what are we supposed to give to Caesar and what are we supposed to give to God? If you're taking notes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I'm not gonna read this, you can read it at home, but it's Romans 13, one through seven. If you wanna know what do I give to Caesar, it says in Romans 13, one through seven, 
submit to the government. I know that doesn't sit well with some of you. It's black and white, word of God, submit to the government. By the way, when Paul wrote that, it was the Roman government, a dictatorship. And he's telling the Christians, submit to the government. Of course, we know if God tells you to do something that the government says differently, you obey God than man. We know that, right? But generally speaking, you submit to the government and then Romans 13, one through seven, pay your taxes. Black and white, word of God. And it just drives me crazy when some Christians use religious reasons for why they're not gonna pay their taxes and they commit tax evasion in the name of God when God's word says, hey, pay your taxes, right? But I don't wanna really focus on that. What I wanna focus on is render to God the things that are God's. Okay, so what are we, what are we supposed to give to God? Romans chapter 12, verse one says this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, how many of you guys believe that God is good? Okay, so if you really believe that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so because you're made in the image of God, God knits you together in your mother's womb. I'm so amazed to see my youngest daughter who's very pregnant right now and to know that Psalm 139 says that the Lord is knitting together this little baby in her womb. So just like that denarius, that the face of Caesar was inscribed on the denarius coin, so you need to know that God's image has been inscribed upon you. You're made in the image of God, he loves you so much. There's no one better than other people, you know, this guy's worth a lot, this guy's worthless. No, 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 we're all priceless. Everybody, no matter where you're from, what color your skin is, where your cultural background is, how much money you got in the bank, the ground at the cross, the foot of the cross is level because we're all made in the image of God. And because God is good, he says, I want you to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. I want you to surrender, the Lord says to me. Submit your will to my will. Acknowledge me as the king of your life. And maybe you're here today and you've never done that. You've never given your life to Jesus. And what I wanna say is that Jesus loves you and he publicly hung on a cross in your place. He took your sins, my sins, and the sins of the world in his body on the tree and he paid the price of hell so we wouldn't have to go there and pay for our own sins. He shed his blood, the God-man, fully God, fully man shed his blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He did that for you. And then he rose again the third day. And now he says, come to me, give yourself to me, let me be your Lord. And so if you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus and you would like to give your life to him today, or 
If you're here and you did that a long time ago, but you're not living for the Lord, I'm gonna encourage you, whatever group you're in, if you wanna give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm gonna ask you just to stand where, where you are and remain standing. Because today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And no one's gonna do this. We're all gonna encourage you because we are all in the same place that you're at. If you've never given your life to Jesus or you wanna come back to Jesus, just stand to your feet and remain standing. And we're gonna take care of this right now. Church family, be praying for those who need to respond, whoever they are. Just stand and remain standing, whoever you are. This is really hard, by the way, for people to do this. So can we really encourage this, this guy over here, this gentleman over here? That, that takes a lot of courage, what he's doing right now. And this lady in the back, let's really encourage this lady here that's standing and giving her life to Jesus today. Does anybody wanna join these two brave souls? Listen, don't put it off till tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts against him. Man, he's so good to you, don't harden your hearts. Stand up, give your life to Christ today. Come to him as Lord. Come to him as Lord, stand and remain standing. Just stand and remain standing, whoever you are. I just, gotta, I, I, I just gotta wait like 10 more seconds because I know there's people who are battling. Listen, everybody who's given their life to Jesus, would you say it's worth it, yes or no? Yeah, yeah. Give your life to him, he'll transform your life. He won't make you perfect, but he'll give you a peace that surpasses all understanding, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, and he'll stand with you through the good times and the bad times. And on top of all that, he'll take you to heaven when you die. That's pretty good. And so, so last call, last call, just stand to your feet, whoever you are, just stand to your feet. Awesome. Awesome. And if you, and by the way, I always forget, if you're wheelchair bound and you can't stand, just ra you know, raise your hand and, and acknowledge Jesus publicly as Lord. We don't, we don't do this private, here's why. Because Jesus is not some disease that we hide. He is Lord God, and we, we confess that publicly. And so, all right. So, those of you who have responded to him today, I commend you, God bless you in the back. Awesome, I'll clap for that. Beautiful. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So those of you who are responding, um, just know we love you, but a million times more than we love you, Jesus knows you and loves you. And he sees you right now. And you can go ahead and, and sit down and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. So go ahead and, and, and be seated. And the prayer that I'm gonna lead you in is something that you're gonna say from your heart to Jesus' heart. You're not gonna repeat words. Repeating words doesn't do anything for anybody ever. From your heart to your heart, to his heart, you're gonna acknowledge that he died for your sins. He paid for them in full. You're gonna acknowledge he rose from the grave and you're gonna confess him as Lord. I'll lead you in that prayer. You can repeat after me. Um, but at the end of the prayer, I'm gonna ask you to out loud, just say, Jesus, you're my Lord. And I'll let you know when to do that. And so everybody in the house, let's bow our heads. 
And repeat this after me, first of all in your heart and then out loud. In your heart say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I know I deserve death. But I believe you came. God, you became a man and you went to a cross and you paid for my sins. Thank you. I believe you rose again the third day. So I ask you to come in. Forgive all my sins. And be the master of my life. So if you believe what you just said in your heart, I want you to say this out loud. Say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Go ahead. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Let's give it up to the Lord. Beautiful. Praise God.